0: Hello and welcome to ABIP podcasts. I'm your host for today. My name is Jasleen Panu. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the Ohio State University uh, Medical Center. I'm an intervention pulmonologist and I have the pleasure today of having our good friend and colleague, Dr. Javier Diaz-Mendoza from Henry Ford Hospital, Detroit, Michigan. Welcome, Javier.
1: Thank you very much, Jasleen. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Dr. Javier Diaz-Mendoza is an associate professor of medicine and the program director of IP fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital. Um, We are going to be talking today about uh, management of tracheoesophageal fistulas, especially from the IP perspective. Um, Before we start, I have to ask you, Javier, do you have any uh, disclosures related to this topic or any conflicts of interest?
1: I have no conflicts of interest.
0: Perfect. Um, Also, um, I want to state that uh, any opinions expressed here are solely of the speakers uh, ourselves and are not necessarily endorsed by the AIBIT. Uh, So after the formalities are out of the way, we can jump right into the topic. Tracheoesophageal fistulas and their management can present a challenge, especially when they're in a setting of malignancy. However, as interventional pulmonologists, we are often asked to assist in managing these patients. So Javier, I wanted to ask you in your practice, uh, when you're consulted for management of a patient with tracheoesophageal fistulas, what is your initial approach and uh, how do you go about um, your initial assessment in these patients?
1: Well, uh, thank you for the question. So it is important to mention that uh, as IP physicians, we get consulted at different stages. Uh, sometimes patients uh, will get consulted after the patients have symptoms or because there was a CT finding showing a tracheoesophageal fistula or after they perform an, an EGD showing the fistula, et cetera. So my approach is number one, I confirm the diagnosis. And I do this by either a sof- an esophagogram, uh, usually we use gastrographin for this, it is important to mention during this phase that we have to differentiate it very clearly with laryngeal aspiration and sometimes can be difficult even for the radi- uh, for, for the radiologist to have this differentiation. So it's important to mention that um, imaging like CT scan can actually help too, to confirm the diagnosis. Uh, it's not sensitive and sometimes even not specific unless you're dealing with a large fistula still you can miss small fistulas uh, with CT images. Uh, and another way to confirm the diagnosis is endoscopic evaluation, and this entitles uh, EGD as well as bronchoscopy. And this is when the first discussion happens with the advanced GI. Uh, then after that, everything just goes hand-by-hand, uh, hand, and that and the next phase will be the evaluation of the anatomy, which is done via broncho- uh, endoscopy. Uh, and, and important points to mention here is the, uh, the lo- try to find out the location of the fistula uh, in the esophagus, as well as in the airways, uh, the size from both ends, from the esophageal and the bronchial end, and whether there's a presence or not of an airway obstruction. So that, that's what in terms of evaluation of anatomy. Then I'll go to the etiology part. So, and this is important because as we know, there are benign and malignant fistulas if we want to um, um, put them in those two boxes. Uh, the way to assess the etiology most of the time ends up with a biopsy. So this is something that we, we, we do from the bronchoscopy uh, standpoint as well as from the endoscopy standpoint with our GI doctors. Uh, if this is a benign fistula, um, you know, it could have happened after a trauma or surgery, etc. There's also some uh, malignancy that I try to differentiate like an, whether the patient has an active malignancy versus a history of a previous malignancy who probably received some sort of radiation and now we're dealing with a post-radiation fistula. Uh, And this is important to mention because the management in both types of malignancy will be very similar. Now, sometimes it is obvious uh, that uh, if you have like a large esophageal or airway tumor with established diagnosis, you know this is a malignant fistula. Uh, However, sometimes you're going to find some uh, wall defects that have necrotic edges or sometimes clean edges. Sometimes it's difficult to differentiate whether this could be benign or malignant. And this is where biopsies uh, come into place. Uh, The etiology, uh, whether benign or malignant, will help uh, with the management as well as with the prognosis. Uh, So after I know the etiology, whether it's benign or malignant, then I go with the discussion with the patient. And I think this is key. Before we offer any intervention to the patient, we need to be clear about the goals. Unfortunately, as we know, malignant fistulas have a poor prognosis, and the survival goes between three or six months, so it's more like a palliation goal, what we try to do with malignant fistulas, and the patients need to know that. Sometimes, maybe increase the survival, but it's unlikely. If it's a benign fistula, they have a better goal, uh, or at least the main goal is to, to undergo surgery at some point. Um, so you involve the surgeon early in the assessment of benign fistulas, for sure. So, But this, these goals are, are, are important to discuss with the patients. Uh, mm-hmm. I have had patients that tell me, uh, because uh, uh, that you find a tracheosophageal fistula and now uh, uh, I need uh, to do, for example, a strict NPO or use a feeding tube uh, to improve my nutrition, that I don't want to deal with that, and then they change the goals of care immediately, even if they are benign fish. So, so this is this is very important. a discussion with patient before you even go with the intervention. We need to be clear about that. And then, of course, you go with the intervention that you are deciding based on the um, multi a specialty approach. You talk to the advanced gastroenterologists, the surgeons the oncologist, depending on what type of fistula this is. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like my initial approach.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for simplifying such complex management in such a systematic way. And, you know, as you spoke about, um, you know, patient uh, discussions with the patient and their involvement in decision-making, it, it reminds me of so many instances that that's really key. And, uh, you know, that should be very useful in deciding uh, which approach we take in the future. And now, you know, when we are consulted, we are almost always asked about placing a stent uh, uh, in the trachea associate whenever a tracheoesophageal fistula is present, that almost always comes with the request uh, of consultation. So, but that's that may or may not always be the case. So in your practice, uh, where do you see the role of stents in this condition and what makes you decide one way or the other in terms of uh, airway stents or esophageal stents also?
1: Uh, Yes, you're right. Uh, I have uh, been involved in those consultations that they, they call us and, well, we're consulting because the patient needs a stent for a tracheosophageal fistula and, and the assessment hasn't happened yet. So you're right about that. Uh, first of all, I need to say that not everybody with a tracheosophageal fistula will need a stent. So that's point number one. And, and number two is that there's no really, if you look at the literature, there's not really a quality data available when it comes to what is the best treatment for patients with tracheosophageal fistula. Everything is pretty much based on retrospective uh, case series or case reports. So it's important to mention this uh, before we talk about stenting. In general, my practice, uh, if this is a patient with a benign fistula after I did all my assessment, um, then the patient should be assessed by the surgeon. So there's no need for a stent uh, unless the surgeon, the surgeon's comment is I will perform the surgery and after the patient uh, gets uh, better nourished, uh, uh, which will take approximately a month or two. In that case, sometimes uh, uh, stents can be placed just for bridge into surgery. Uh, but if the patient is not a surgical candidate, uh, then really, you're not, you're not, uh, you don't have many options there. If it's a very small fistula, and by small fistula we usually talk about less than five millimeters in size. And sometimes a uh, therapy, uh, local therapy like uh, clipping the fistula from the esophageal side, side uh, use of tissue adhesives or fibrin glue have been described again as case series or reports really no major, but they can be attempted since the fistulas are small. But if the fistula is large, it's more than five millimeters and, and it's a benign fistula, we usually, the way I, we started is, okay, let's, let's see how the patient goes with the esophageal stent alone. And then if the, the uh, contamination of the airways is controlled with that, then there's no need to add on an airway stenting. Now, if that is not enough and the contamination of the airways continues, then use of or placement of the airway stenting could be advised at that moment. Now, it's a different scenario when it comes to malignant fistulas. First of all, you have to treat the malignancy uh, at that moment, and and that's sometimes uh, an issue. Many of these patients already present with a recurrence of malignancy uh, or, uh, sometimes malignancies that are not responding to therapy. So in those cases, um, basically most of the time you're going to consider some sort of a stenting on this patient. Remember that the goal at this moment with a malignancy is just for palliation purposes, is not to cure the fistula.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, depending on the on the location of the fistula, if it's located in the proximal to mid esophagus, which usually aligns with the trachea, um, uh, some retrospective uh, case case series have shown that double stenting provides better seal, meaning a stenting of the esophagus as well as the airways, Mm -hmm. when there's involvement of the trachea itself. So now some caveats for this is, um, if you're planning to do that, you want to place the airway stent first before you place the esophageal stent. The reason for that is you do it the other way around the esophageal stent because there is a, a compliance of the esophagus, it can the esophageal stent can expand to the point that it causes obstruction of the airway. So you don't want that to happen. So that's something to consider. Also another point is that you probably are better off with, um, uh, self-expanding metal stents, they usually provide a better apposition against the wall, although you can still use silicon stents uh, for that. Um, and something that you have to be aware of, that if you place uh, stents in both um, in both organs, in the airways as well as the esophagus, there's something called the pressure crosses. that uh, what's going to be is the expansion of both stents will cause a uh, 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 necrosis of the walls of the airway as well as necrosis of the esophageal uh, wall, so it is important to consider not oversizing the stents but just giving us the right size for the stent just to try to cover the wall defect. Uh, and now and also it's important to mention that if the, the fistula is very proximal within the esophagus. Then esophageal stents will not be possible to place because of very dis- a lot of discomfort from the patient. So sometimes you just may- you may just have to consider an airway stenting in those cases. Now, if the fistula is in the distal esophagus, then uh, start with the esophageal stent first because um, um, there may not be a need to use an airway stent. Uh, now, uh, um, if it doesn't work, then then you can place your West End afterwards. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's uh, definitely very helpful. It's so much uh, more complicated, right? Than how it just, how it's just <laughs> asked. Yes, as it like.
1: is not a straightforward. Yes, you're right. Yeah.
0: And there are so many consequences to it, but, um, but you highlighted so many important points about it. Um, and definitely, you know, you also touched on how the management is so multidisciplinary. And this would involve, obviously, GI if esophageal stenting or monitoring is involved, and then thoracic surgery and IP, and sometimes oncology also in in several ways, um, which can be challenging in a lot of um, cases. Uh, what are some ways that uh, we can maximize this collaboration um, in order to benefit this the patient? You think?
1: Right. So one thing that we do in our in our um, in our hospital is. Uh, we use a tumor board meeting as a platform to discuss these cases. Mm -hmm. Um, Since most of the uh, fistulas that we see, and actually in general, are malignant, so uh, we discuss them in tumor board. And so the surgeon is there, the oncologist is there, so everybody can give their opinion about it. Uh, Now, the problem is this only happens once a week. Uh, So sometimes we need to have... uh, um, uh, to have early communications with the surgeons and the GI physicians. Now, uh, we usually involve the GI physicians uh, early, and this happens during the assessment of the tracheosophageal fistula. So when we haven't even done the bronchoscopy, but we're assessing the patient for a, uh, for a fistula, we involve them too. So it is important to do that. So we go, you know, hand by hand in terms of the management for these patients. We we actually do sometimes video meetings during the procedure when they're doing the endoscopy in the patients, we we connect via FaceTime to see what they're seeing and then vice versa. If it's a benign fistula, we involve the surgeons uh, early as well because they need to be assessed by surgery to see whether there are surgical candidates or not.
0: Mm-hmm. And then one,
1: one of the important part that we do is uh, we, we try to assign a primary service, and I think this helps mm-hmm. for the management of the fistula, which means usually in our case is us, it's interventional pulmonology. Um, uh, and, and this, what is gonna happen is, uh, so we're the primary when it comes to uh, the plan. we direct the plant, we talk to the gastroenterologist, we are the ones talking to the uh, uh, surgeon, et cetera, if it's needed. And this will give consistency with the, to the plan as well as uh, will, be, will give consistency to the discussion with the patient. It's better than one, one person or on one team talks to the patient with all the alternatives after discussing with everybody rather than a lot of uh, physicians, you know, talking different and sometimes uh, uh, making the patient a little confused about it. Now, of course, if, if the patient is a surgical candidate then the surgeon will have to take the lead on this.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and and then we are just kind of like the consultants at that moment.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's uh, actually a really good idea because um, the management of these patients is not just like at the time of consultation. It may continue for months and years, you know, and having that uh, one primary serv- service would be probably very helpful for the patient. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, any anything um, that uh, you can add about um, if there are any newer therapeutic options uh, and future directions of management that can be used to assist uh, these patients like any um, three dimensional stents or plaza devices or mattresses or something like that 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 is that is that we can see in the future may help these patients besides stenting or surgery
1: yes and that's uh, um that, that is a good question and that's something that we've been dealing with for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, there hasn't been much progress on this either. Um, as, as, as I said before, the problem is uh, everything is just anecdotal approaches to, to sort of uh, tracheosophageal fistulas uh, and just very small case series, so we don't even know if that helps. However, uh, for example, 3D stents, the, the benefit that I that I can see for is uh, it would be good for anatomically challenged areas um, that you may have to deal with from the airway standpoint that maybe you don't have a, 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 you know, an availability for um, uh, a self-expanding metal stand, for example, or know, Dumont-wise stand, et cetera. So anatomically challenged areas can actually be recreated with 3D stands, and that will be the best, so it will give you a better position. But again, it's, it's just for palliation purposes. This is not to treat the fistula itself. Mm-hmm. Um, endoscopic lips, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, this is via EGD mm-hmm. uh, and usually used for benign fistulas. Again, just you know, case, case reports about that. Uh, the use of, as you mentioned, a, a cellular matrix, uh, they usually come as patches. Um, the problem with this, or not the problem, actually, the good thing is that it, it leads to tissue regeneration, but only the tissue can regenerate, right? So in benign fistulas, I can see that, uh, you know, benef- benefit on that, but in, in malignant with ne- fistulas with necrosis, presence of necrosis, that tissue is not going to regenerate and it's going to continue to, unfortunately, get bigger and bigger. So uh, uh, I use it though. I've used it uh, when I had to use a silicone stent uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for these fistulas. I found it. I found that the uh, the use of a patch with a cellular matrix can actually uh, provide a better seal uh, of the silicone stent against the walls. Um, uh, but, but that's pretty much it. I, I don't do it in malignant fistulas for regeneration because there's nothing to regenerate there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, there
1: have been other uh, advancements in terms of uh, use of ablative therapies like laser or uh, argon plasma coagulation. And this is mainly in children, mm-hmm. not in adults. Uh, what it does is kind of promotes re-epithelialization of the, of the tissue. Uh, again, you need the tissue that is sort of intact in terms of can regener- regenerate, otherwise it, it doesn't help with it. So, um, because of most of the fistulas are malignant, it, it is really treatment of the malignancy and hoping that the fistula pretty much improves just by doing that. Uh, unfortunately, the the outcomes are not are not the greatest on these patients.
0: Yeah. And like you reiterated, um, the focus is a lot on palliation. Yeah, definitely, uh, malignant tracheosophageal fistulas are quite challenging. Yes. Um, well, Javier, I certainly learned a lot in this uh, conversation and I'm sure our listeners would too of how systematically and you've, uh, um, highlighted so many important points. And, um, uh, I thank you again for, for joining me today for this great conversation.
1: Oh, well, no, it was my pleasure. Just lean really, uh, It's really nice talking to you after a while. So but thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate that.
0: Thank you.